Welcome to the Troy Kearns Podcast, where we talk all things real estate, business, and entrepreneurship. Today, I have a very special guest, Mr. Brian Nadafi of Avalon Legal Group. Brian has been an attorney of mine for several years. He is an experienced litigator. He's a smart guy. He's a young guy, and you can learn a lot from him. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, Troy. Good to see you. Thank you for being here. The reason I have you on here is you're probably one of the best attorneys that I know, probably one of the most honest attorneys I know, and you've helped me out tremendously. And I believe that people who are listening to this show are between the ages of 18 to 40, skewing male about 70%, and they're interested in investing in real estate, and you do a lot of real estate matters. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, do you remember how we met? I was representing a client on a real estate deal, and I think you learned about that deal through some public filing, and then you just you, you called me one day out of the blue. Random. And I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> who the hell is this guy? That's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in this field, the legal field, uh, you meet a lot of personalities, and you were definitely one of them that, 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 that struck out to me as cool guy. And uh, yeah, I remember we spoke over the phone. We had a couple conversations and then we met in person. That's right. Actually, I was looking for another, there was somebody who was doing some creative type of deals that I had been paying attention to. It was actually a wholesaler that I had bought one property from. The fellow that we're talking about had always bragged about his legal expertise and how many people, how many good attorneys he had. And so I started to kind of chase some of those deals down and you were on the other side of one of those deals. And so I felt like, well, this is great. Might as well hire a smart attorney who's already doing work like that. And that's how we got to know each other. And pretty much you've been one of my main go-to people for everything legal. Yep. We work on a lot of stuff together. So tell me about yourself. Like, where are you from? What got you into law? And who are you? All right. Well, I'm originally from New York, Flushing, Queens. And uh, what got me into the legal field? Well, I am the son of two immigrants. And what's the big American dream is to have your children become, what, a lawyer or a doctor. So that was that was with me from, from the get-go. Okay. Went to NYU for undergrad. Uh, I, it was a difficult time back then. That was the economy was just about to start shaking up. And I graduated in 2009. 2009. So the uh, workforce was very difficult. So I decided to go to law school. You know, that really like solidified, go to law school, don't don't go out there and take a year off and work. So you were already like, so you graduated high school and you didn't know for sure you wanted to be a lawyer. I had the idea to be a lawyer from my, from my parents, but you know, they're not lawyers. I didn't know any lawyers when I was a kid and didn't grow up with any lawyers. No one in my family's a lawyer. Okay. So for me, a lawyer was this, you know, out there concept of some body who does something for other people. Right. That was all I truly knew about being a lawyer. And then aside from that is that, you know, theoretically they make good money. Theoretically they make good money. Theoretically they make good money. <laughs> so you got a little bit of an inkling. You went in, you saw the economy was collapsing. You went to NYU. NYU is a pretty easy school to get into, right? <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's, a, it's a tough school to get into, mostly because it's in the middle of Manhattan and, you know, everyone young in their early 20s or late teens, they want to go to New York and enjoy themselves. So a lot of people in there. And uh, after NYU, decided I wanted to go to the uh, West Coast. Got tired of being in New York my whole life. Want to go see the other side of the country. So I went to UCLA School of Law. Okay. So you went to NYU, prestigious school. I think I remember reading somewhere you graduated summa cum laude. Summa cum laude, yes. Yeah, summa cum laude. Probably, I'm not a... I have no idea how you say it. All I know is that it was really difficult to pull off. So, which means that Brian's a super smart guy. You had a lot of high grades, I'm guessing, high marks, and did well in your class. And why did you uh, decide to go to UCLA? I went to UCLA because I visited Los Angeles, and okay. I really love Southern California. And the only school that was going to keep me outside of Southern California was Harvard Law. And uh, I got waitlisted over there. And so I wound up just saying, okay, well. So Harvard was your first choice. Harvard was, I think, any person's first choice for a law school. Right. It's Harvard. So even it, though it's still technically not even number one, it's Harvard. Right. I would agree with you on that. Like yeah. when I think about... I'm trying to raise two lawyers, as you know. There you go, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need them. <laughs> and uh, I always try to impress upon, like, just 
it's not, you know, perceptions reality. And Harvard's is perceived to be the creme de la creme of all schools. Absolutely, absolutely. But UCLA is not bad either. It's 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 a pretty pretty high tiered school. So so you went to UCLA. You got your law degree. Did you have any special practice that you uh, majored in or minored in, or how did that go? No, there was no special focus over there. When I was at UCLA School of Law, um, everything was really difficult in the legal field as a just getting out of law school so it was just kind of frantic everyone just took whatever they could get okay um the legal field's a little different today than when i graduated in 2012. okay i'm not gonna say it's easier but it's less competitive when you number one less competitive to get into law school and number two less competitive to get a big law job now but right now you're a sole practitioner Correct. Well, I not a sole practitioner, but you don't. I run my own small law firm. Yes. You have a sorry. He does. He's not a sole practitioner, meaning where he's doing all his billing and all his receivables (laughs) and uh, you know doing his own discovery motions and time, but all that. But what I'm saying is that you're not with a big firm. It's your own firm. Correct. Yes. And it's boutique firm. Correct. At one point in time, did you work with a bigger firm? Yes, I worked with an insurance defense firm in Los Angeles. And then when I moved to Nevada, I started working at smaller law firms. What brought you to Nevada? Well, funny enough, uh, my parents moved out to Nevada a long time ago, and I was always a visitor out here. And then I just kind of enjoyed it. I studied for the bar in Vegas. Okay. And I genuinely enjoyed the town. You know, for the stereotypical reasons, obviously, we got we got all sorts of entertainment. Right. But also, it's a really nice community setting, too. There's for sure. There's lots of stuff to do here, lots of space. And, and for the most part, people are decent out here. I would agree. I would agree. And the other thing is, it's actually a fantastic place to be a lawyer. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, it there's is. a lot of people that are, for all the good people, there's... Some bad ones, of course. <laughs> and we've got a robust economy. We've got 2.3 million people here. So you basically followed your parents out here, and you're 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 pretty tight with your dad. I know that from being with you a, a number of years. That like that's your, you guys are like best friends. I would almost say yes, absolutely, yeah. That's a real special bond. I hope to have the same bond with my uh, child. This is on topic, but how did he develop that with you? Um, honestly, we just spend time together, work together. Um, my father and I, he likes to work a lot. Yeah. He's a workaholic. Yes. And I'm also a workaholic. So we have that common feature. And so we talk about work together. We talk about legal stuff together. And he he's likes not to make a lawyer. Money. Yeah, he likes to make money. Yes. He's not a lawyer, but he's very, very smart. Right. And so I'll talk to him about all sorts of legal concepts. And then, you know, we'll just kind of go back and forth on, on different things. So that's how we talk. We don't, you know, we don't bullshit about sports or movies or stuff like that. No. It's more business and things to do. And you also work with your wife as well, right? Correct. Yes. My wife works with me. And that that's like, so you got a family business. At this point, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Was that by design? No, it's just you want to surround yourself with people that you can trust. Right. And not to sound cliche, but, you know, who better to trust than family? For sure. If you can't trust family, then you got problems. Exactly. And they're always going to look out for you. Now, for those of you who are listening to us right now, Brian was actually one of my first guests when I was first getting going. And the video totally got botched and it was not a good representation of us or him because of the video not being well edited, prepared or whatever the situation was then. So now we have him here in the studio again. This guy charges $500 an hour. He's a dynamo attorney. He's done a ton of stuff for me that I guess you think out of the box more than most attorneys. Some guys just see it right down the middle. How do you think you kind of developed that skill set for being such I would argue a young attorney. Well, one of the things I've learned is there is no right or wrong or specific way to do something in the legal field. There's just people who have done it their own way. And once I learned that, I learned that you can actually just be creative. And what's cool about the legal system is that there's a lot of problems presented to you, and all you have to try to do is think about it as a problem to be solved. So it's essentially a puzzle right. that you're trying to work out, right? right? And you know, you do a lot of mental work to try to get there right. to, to figure out how to solve these puzzles. 
But, um, you know, creativity, for me at least, it's just because I like looking at something where someone says, you can't figure this out. Or, right. I think we have that What are we going to do? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You and I will sit down and, you know, we don't talk hypothetically. You actually present <laughs> yeah. these crazy concepts right. sometimes to me. And we sit down and we think about it together. Well, you know, it's interesting. We actually had Tom Grover on earlier. And... Uh, <laughs> One thing I want to talk about a deal that we did together, because I think this just demonstrates how creative Brian can be, because the, Brian's not a probate attorney. Um, Tom is a probate attorney, and Brian is a general counsel who specializes in what would you say your biggest specialty is? Business litigation and real estate litigation. And a lot of the times they mix together. Right. And so at that point in time, you knew probate. Most attorneys have some familiarity with probate. We had a situation... Um, 362 Clayton in Henderson, Nevada. <laughs> and this yeah. is actually a really fun deal because yeah. this deal was to put under contract by another wholesaler called Alex Buys Any Vegas House or something like that. And when it came to me, they had already had a year with it and couldn't get anywhere. And the reason was is because there was a hospital lien for like almost $200,000 on it. That was substantial, yeah. And then I gave it to Tom. And he's like, you're not going to win. And you and I went and talked about it. And you're like, yeah, I think we can win. And we went through there and we knocked that hospital bill down to 7500 bucks. Yep. And we turned a deal that had $0 in equity into a deal that had about $100,000 in equity. Yeah, I remember that. It took about, what, six, seven months and some back and forth, but we did it. Yeah, and, and that's the reason that you're on here today is... I want to impress upon people, if you're getting started in your real estate career, if you're getting started in your business career, and you're not working with smart attorneys, if you're not taking smart attorneys to lunch, if you're not trying to build relationship with smart attorneys, then you're not doing the right thing. If you're making enemies out of smart attorneys, you're not doing the right thing. Now, we've you've probably single-handedly represented me in more legal matters than anybody else. <laughs> I guess what would you what would your advice be to to somebody who found themselves in like some sort of a litigation or in some sort of a problem legal matter or how would somebody prevent themselves from having problems with legal matters in real estate? Well, in real estate specifically, one of the best things you need to do is always own real estate. If you're going to try to make a dollar on, on real estate, own it in a company, in a limited liability company. That's always my number one piece of advice. And don't go out and create that LLC yourself. Right. It's really simple. You know, we got the Google lawyer today. Yeah. Um, you should meet with a professional. It doesn't have to be me, but you should meet with a lawyer who will set you up with the right operating agreement and teach you how to actually do your books and accounting and things like that. Because if you don't do it correctly, one day, even though whatever property you have is in an LLC, that LLC can get attacked and it can be opened up and then you could have personal liability. But if you met with a lawyer beforehand and did everything correctly and followed through, you are completely separate from that entity. So you're never going to have any issue or liability. So essentially what you're saying is don't put things in your personal name. Use the corporate barrier that an LLC provides and make sure that when you set it up, even though you could use Google to probably do it, that you might want to hire someone who actually knows how to enforce them and decimate them. Correct. Correct. Uh, and and that's all has to go with like piercing the corporate veil. That's exactly the concept. That's it. Yeah. So can we talk about what piercing the corporate veil means? Yeah. I mean, in a nutshell, it's just um, some judgment creditor is going to come in there and say, okay, I have a, a judgment against LLCA. Okay. And LLCA is owned by Troy. Right. So I know LLCA has nothing in it. It really doesn't have anything in it. It's, it's just kind of sitting there. But I really want to go after Troy. Well, how do I use my judgment against LLCA to go after Troy? Well, one of the first things I can do is I look at the bank records. If I see that Troy has been using the bank account of LLCA as his own, you know, personal bank account, well, that's going to be a problem. If I see McDonald's purchases in there, Uber, Netflix, stuff like that, well, clearly those aren't legitimate business expenses. You're just using this as your alter ego. And that's what we call it, your alter ego. Well, for me, a legitimate business expense would be Uber Eats, <laughs> McDonald's, and wherever I <laughs> 
But <laughs> I funny enough, Netflix maybe not. I've had one where uh, the guy was using Tinder. So <laughs> good luck saying getting laid is a legitimate expense, right? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, definitely you could probably try to make a compelling case in front of the judge, <laughs> but I don't know if that would work. So, you know, I talk, I think about cases. We're currently uh, doing a few cases. I know we can't get into details about the specifics of them, but there's mo- most of the cases that you're representing me right now, we are the plaintiff. Correct. And we are actually trying to get people to pay us. Correct. Because of things that they didn't do. Correct. Or did do and don't want to take responsibility for doing. Exactly, yes. In my experience from from being, you know, a plaintiff several times, usually if you're suing just an individual or someone with an LLC, you're just throwing darts at each other back and forth, and you're really never going to collect, and the only person that really wins is the attorney on both sides. Yep. Is that what you would say is true as well? I think it's very true. I think one of the things you have to analyze when you're a lawyer or you're a litigant is that piece of paper that you're seeking, which is a judgment, is it actually going to be worthwhile? Or is it just going to be a very expensive, shiny piece of paper that says you get X amount due for you? When you sue a company, a corporation, an LLC, something like that, um, you have to, one of the first things you have to do is figure out whether you know there's ever anything to attach to or take from in there. Otherwise, the lawsuit could just be a lot of money being spent. The lawyers make good money on it. And you just ultimately walk away either with a win, but a worthless piece of paper, or a loss and a giant bill. Let's talk about that. So you brought up an interesting point that I want to drive home. When he said worthless piece of paper, a lot of people will think that a judgment, I got a judgment here. I got this guy dead to rights. He owes me $250,000. But you're saying that paper might be worthless because I think that rule of thumb is that 90% of judgments are uncollectible. There's, yeah, there's so many uncollectible judgments. I mean, I have a client who had a $5.5 million judgment against him. Mm -hmm. They, the plaintiffs didn't collect one penny and I just recently got it all thrown out anyway on appeal. Can we talk about that? (laughs) (laughs) Like, let's, let's, so how, how did you get that thrown out and why did the judge grant that to be thrown out? So first of all, there was an attorney prior to me. Right. And without going into specifics and and, and laying any sort of blame, a judgment was assigned as a result of a default after the attorney had left the case. Okay. I went to appeal. I went to the Nevada Supreme Court, took some time. They threw everything out. They said it was done incorrectly. I mean, look, you're getting a $5.5 million judgment against somebody. Right. Right? Like it's- On a default. On a default. And I said at the very minimum, you know, give us a hearing where we can go and do the whole court process, submit evidence, take testimony. So I'm actually right in the process of doing that whole well, that's, that's testimony. That's interesting. I've told you about the one in Mississippi against me, right? Yeah, you've told me about that yeah, one. So yeah, so I actually have a judgment against me in Mississippi right now um, for a default where we actually, our accountant was served with it and his person did not give me that and therefore we're fighting backwards as you know and you're and it's a default by clerk's entry of default meaning that we actually did show up but we showed up a couple days late and you know now we're going through the appeal process right it's and and the whole time i've tried to settle i've tried to settle and and the whole thing about this thing is it started over a forty five hundred dollar septic system that regardless of whether it wasn't my fault the fact that now I'm spending ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars and more to fight this thing off when I could have settled it up front is teaching me a big lesson. Yep. And the biggest lesson is to try not to get in legal squabbles. Absolutely. And sometimes they are unavoidable. You know, there's a lot of people out there that have different opinions than you do and they can see something that you're doing and say it's actionable. Or worse than that, they'll meet an attorney who's going to say it's actionable because... That is worse than that. Yeah, I've met lots of attorneys who I respectfully disagree with on on what they consider a legitimate lawsuit or not. Right. Like I had a situation, and I think I told you about it. I had an attorney that I had hired, and we were defrauded out of some money. And so we were going to go after the seller or go after the agent who actually defrauded us. And then... Like I get 90% of the way there and I'm told that there's a statute of collectability on the amount of like $400. Hmm. 
after I dropped like $45,000 in attorney's fees. And, you know, you could go and file a bar complaint. You could go and do a bunch of things. But I felt like, you know what? I just don't even want to work with this person anymore. And this is a lesson for me to just not sue people for stupid crap. 100%. You know? There's, there's also a line where when you're dealing with attorneys, you always want honesty. And you want an attorney who's not only just going to be there to throw fuel on the fire. You know, I, you and I have had many conversations where I'm the Grim Reaper and tell you, no, that's not going to happen. Here's the bad news. Alaska Airlines. There you go, right? <laughs> but that's how you're supposed to look at things. We're right. supposed to be honest when we look at them, right? Um, not egg me on. You can do it. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's a business practice for some people, right? Uh, I can make a lot of money off this one lawsuit if we continue it. I'm getting paid $500 an hour. Right. Let's keep on doing it. My business practice is I'd actually like volume. I'd rather have 30, 40 different matters with you than one prolonged lawsuit. Right. You know, it just makes more sense right. like that because I only want to work on things that make sense and try to end them as soon as possible. Right. For your benefit. And that and and that's one thing I can tell that you actually care. By all honesty, there's not too many attorneys that I can tell you that when you build a strong enough bond with somebody, they, they're going to be invested in your success if they yeah. know you're not a total scumbag or something like that. But a lot of attorneys, they just don't care. It's like, you know what? I got the job to do. If you don't like it, you're the 30 client I have and I'm working a big caseload or whatever. Yep. The other thing that I learned from working with you, I mean, you've taught me a lot. That's why I always like working with somebody who can teach me. You taught me about prove up hearings, about default. We could talk about default judgments, actually. We made <laughs> we made money on a default judgment. Yeah. And yeah. and that's a good point to drive home with our with our listening audience right now. And if, if you're listening right now and you like what Brian has to say, please make sure that you comment. Please make sure that you like. Please make sure that you share. And make sure you definitely give us a five-star review or a thumbs up on YouTube. Wherever you're finding us, make sure that you follow us because this is free legal advice. And it's question and answer stuff that you're not going to get anywhere else except for on the Troy Kearns podcast. So one of the ways that you told me we were trying to chase, I had dealt with a property of a guy who was going to sell it to me, who had actually called me from prison. And this gentleman had actually agreed to sell me the property. And then the paperwork, I think he was trying to shop the deal is what I think was happening. Anyways, the clock ran out after spending, I don't, God knows how many times on the phone with him inserting money, as so to speak, on the credit ca- calling card. And we ended up, you know, they got, there's a reason that people are in prison, right? Some, some, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. So we ended up actually trying to go stop the sale. That didn't work. But we were still able to turn that into a win, which I never saw a win, but you did. You want to talk about that? So, yeah, I remember that one pretty clearly. So, essentially, you entered into a contract, or your company entered into a contract to buy a piece of real property. Correct. Seller just disappeared on you. Well, didn't disappear on you. The dude's in jail. We know exactly where he is. It became non-respondent. Not, yes, not responsive. And so, at that point in time, the contract was violated. Right. By him. As a purchaser of real property in Nevada, you are allowed to seek what's called specific performance. Basically saying, hey, court, because you go to court, I want to buy this piece of real property. And because it's unique, you you can actually compel the seller to sell me the property. Because I can't get another property exactly like this. There might be something comparable, but not like this. When we received the case, it was, I believe, a day before the uh, foreclosure was going to happen. Correct. So there was a foreclosure that was pending. Looming. time. And so I've done this plenty of times. I know you can't stop a foreclosure the day of with filing a lawsuit, serving, all doing it within a couple hours. Impossible. Bankruptcy is the only way. Bankruptcy is the only way. But you can't do it. The seller can file for bankruptcy. Correct. Right? Because you don't have any right to the property outside of this um, contract that's been violated that now you have to go to court for. So what we did instead was we filed the lawsuit against the guy. We recorded what's called the list pendants against the property, which just says, hey, we have some sort of title interest in this property. Okay. The property still went to foreclosure because the uh, foreclosing entities, they look at it and they say, well, you know, it's posted after our foreclosure has started. Whoever buys this is going to take clear title. Right. Cool. Fantastic. Perfect. So at this point in time, I remember, Troy, you're thinking I'm crazy. Right. But the market was doing pretty 
pretty good gangbusters at the time. Things were selling for what they were mo for more than what they were worth. Man, I wish it would have been now. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, what happened after that that foreclosure sale? Well, the foreclosing trustee had a big pile of money, a big bag of money, and all they could do was pay themselves what they were owed under the note from the seller. Right. And let's talk about that a little bit, because a lot of people think that when a house goes to foreclosure, that everything is lost. Nope. So we're talking about excess proceeds. Correct. So when a property goes to foreclosure, and depending on which state it's in, in Nevada, we are a judicial, no, a non-judicial. Non-judicial. You can do it both ways technically here, but everyone does non-judicial. Right. So we're non-judicial, which means that we go through the foreclosure. It doesn't have to be a court hearing. It goes on the auction steps. Whatever's owed to the creditors mm -hmm. has to be satisfied. Correct. And then the rest of the money will be placed where? Well, the trustee, so the, the party who's conducted the sale for the benefit of the creditors and any junior lien holders, has all this money. They pay out whoever is supposed to get what they're supposed to receive. Sometimes there's a bag of money left there. Five, 10, 20, 30, half a million dollars. It can be any amount, and I've seen any amount, well, they have to give that money back to the person who owed under the mortgage, according to our laws in Nevada. Sometimes they can't find that person. Sometimes there's a bigger issue, but ultimately- Sometimes a, they're dead? Sometimes they're dead. We call these excess proceeds, proceeds in excess of the debt. So what they can do is they can, the trustee can go and deposit it with the court and say, hey court, it's no longer our problem. Someone has to come out here and can try to claim it. Sometimes that money gets deposited with the, uh, the treasurer's office too. But using this same concept, in our example with, uh, with, with our seller, the wonderful man in prison, we- <laughs> Wonderful man in prison. Wonderful man in prison. We filed our lawsuit right before the sale, recorded our loose pendants right before the sale. I defaulted him. We served him. We did everything the way you're supposed to. I defaulted him because he didn't want to answer. And I got a judgment saying he violated the contract. Now, I couldn't compel the sale of the property. Correct. That's past us. What could I do was I could say, well, the value of this property compared to something else, compared to something else, is our damages. We had an award of damages for that amount, and guess what we could collect that damages award by? We took the money that was held in excess, and it went straight to the plaintiff, your company. Correct, and so basically, if you wanna break it down in simple terms, the property that I was gonna buy, I was gonna fix up, flip, and sell for a profit. This way, because the seller defaulted on it, and I thought everything was wasted time, energy, money, and everything like that, Brian identified that if the market did, if it did get bid up above what the creditors owed and the property was worth more because of what I paid for it and contracted it for, then potentially that bucket of money, some of it or all of it could be mine. Correct. Yes. And in that case, I think we might still have some outstanding there. Do we already square that? We got most, we took all the proceeds. There's still some money left over. And this is all public record. So. Right. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not worried about it. Yeah. We did everything hundred percent by yeah. the book, but that taught me something there. And what I'm, what I'm trying to explain is if you're working with smart attorneys that know how to solve problems and that know, I would have never thought of that in a, in a million years, but I guarantee you, I'm going to think of it again, <laughs> you know? And, and the point for this more so than anything else is if you're in a real estate deal and for whatever reason, the seller or someone's violating the contract, it's not the end of the story there. And granted, your realtor or your agent might know some information. It can't hurt to just get on the phone and call an attorney. Talk to somebody who deals with these sort of things. It can help you think outside of the box or just say, hey, this is what we can or can't do. The only thing you can do wrong is wait too long to go speak to a professional. Right. So let me ask you this. How do you schedule your day and what what's kind of like your daily routine? You know, your nine to five. How do you structure your thing? Go into your whole routine, I guess, if you will. All right. Well, my day is sustained chaos at all times. All right. Uh, my assistant, she's the master of my schedule. She, she, Luz, you've met Luz. Luz is amazing. 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 Yeah, she's been working with me for years I now. made her job offer the other day. But She accepted. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to break it on the podcast. No, but in the mornings, it's typically a court appearance or two. Uh, COVID actually made things a lot easier because I get to do court appearances via 
Uh, it's called Blue Jeans, but it's basically Skype without Z the filters or Zoom without all those weird like kitten filters. <laughs> Don't want to be that guy. I think it could be cool. Yeah, right. Don't want to be that guy that was the kitten over there. Here's the kitten. <laughs> <laughs> but um, outside of that, like in the mornings, we do that. A lot of my day is also talking with clients. Right. And then managing my cases with with some of my like my staff, my lawyers. And really just kind of figuring things out on a sort of, you know, higher or meta basis. And then I'll pick one or two cases that I'm really honed in on and focused on. Because if you don't just take a couple things and work on them, the day's going to hit you with all sorts of other information, stuff like that. You know, right. clients are texting, calling, you're one of them. <laughs> I try, I'm pretty, you're pretty good, though. I got to say, you're yeah, pretty good. Yeah, I don't – you know if I'm calling – it's not to cut the, sh cut yeah. the crap. It's yeah. like, Brian, I need you. It's and we usually have a few, quite a few matters going on, yeah. and you're actually. <laughs> we just had a deposition the other day. And I know I threw a completely uh, wrench and uh, made you look bad, but uh, we'll, we'll go on that a little bit. Actually, I should probably let you explain that. It'll be a lot funnier, but. Basically, what happened was, um, you know, I'm in a new city. I don't have my office. I don't have my Zoom. I don't have everything. And I'm doing most of my Zooms for my phone. Fortunately, I didn't have to fly to, back to Nevada to be deposed. And so that was great. And I'm like, all right, I know this is going to go bad if I don't have a good Wi-Fi. So I went and drove to a hotel, got a <laughs> Wi-Fi, and then the lady won't give me the Wi-Fi connection. And so literally, I'm all set up and... I'm doing the zoom through my phone in the deposition as they're showing like, yep. as they're showing like, oh, exhibits. Need exhibits. I'm like, <laughs> all right. And then finally, and then the phone's cutting out and it's just going all bad. And so we were able to continue it. But when you, when you, when you deal with depositions uh, and you deal with clients, what do you tell them to do? When I'm with my own clients Correct. and they're getting deposed? Well, one of the first things I always go over with all my clients is don't volunteer more information than necessary. A deposition is not a conversation. It might feel like it, especially because there's not a judge there. It's just the attorneys, court reporter, and the deponent. Sometimes a party will be there too. But it's not a normal conversation. Right. This is more normal of a conversation. And even this, where, where we have the microphones like this. Yeah. And we got to be careful even here just because we have other cases going on. Exactly. So in a case, um, human nature, you want to talk. Right. If, if I say something to you and then I close my mouth and I look at you, part of you just being a human being is you're going to want to start talking. You're going to want to fill that gap. The uncomfortable silence. Y you want to. And that's because... People, you know, we're, we're creatures. We like to be in a group setting. That's just how we are. And so in a deposition, an attorney might ask you a question, and it can be a very short, simple question, and then they'll just sit there stone-faced. Or the good attorney as well. Right. And you're just going to answer your question, and it might be a short answer. And then you're going to sit there, and he's not, he or she isn't going to say anything. Now, every part of you He's going to start saying, start talking, start talking, fill in the gap, fill right, in the gap. Right, right. Say something. You got to fight that urge. Right. You got to fight that urge. And that's the hardest thing to, to really get through to people is don't volunteer. Because what happens? Us as attorneys, we take advantage of that need to kind of fulfill or fill in the gaps. Right. You start talking about this out of the other. Now you've given me six other things to question you on. Right. So there's more branches to go through and you just keep on piling it on. So one thing that I've learned by working with you... Besides about how to conduct myself in a deposition, actually, I think we've been through two, or is it three? Two at this time. <laughs> two at this time. Yeah. Two at this time. Uh, You've taken testimony in trial, though, in court. Yes. You've given testimony to a couple times. Right. You know, just like anything, not that you want to be practiced at taking depositions, but it takes practice, and you should practice before you, be de before you get deposed so that you don't tell them everything that they don't need to hear and then they hang you on that. But one thing I really learned is that the legal system is set up on a case calendar. Everything that happens is based on a case calendar, not only from attorneys getting paid, but the longevity of the case. Mm -hmm. and can we go through like some of the common terms that you hear like summary judgment and the case calendar and how that works. So yeah, let me give you kind of a quick breakdown, at least in uh, you know Nevada, right? Okay, because every state's different, and uh, Nevada is pretty 
relaxed or cool because we borrow a lot from our federal counterpart. Okay. Okay. Case is initiated typically with a complaint. You file a complaint. That complaint is basically a little narrative that you tell the court. This is the set of facts that I believe caused the defendant to have some sort of um, action I can seek against them. Right. right. So it's just your little narrative, and it can be as long or as short as you want it to. The main point is that once the defendant sees this narrative, they should have a general idea as to what they are being sued for, not necessarily how much they're being sued for. Okay. Um, you take that, and you have to now— That's called the complaint. That's the complaint. Okay. Then you issue a summons. I serve the complaint and the summons onto the defendant. Summons means? Summons is basically you're getting summoned into the jurisdiction of the court. So the complaint is the alleged? The allegations. The allegations. Correct. And the summons is? Is is basically, what's the easiest way to say the summons? You're being summoned or hailed into court. All right, so the summons is the notification like, hey, here's the complaint. Here's the summons that you got to come together. Yes. Okay, so that's the first part of Correct. The... And that's a that's a jurisdictional issue. In order for the court to be able to do anything to you, it has to have jurisdiction over you. Right? Okay. A court without jurisdiction over you is And when nothing. you when you speak about jurisdiction, let's talk about that because I'm I'm learning here as yeah. well. Meaning that they don't have the ability to do something to you. There's two types of jurisdiction you have to have fulfilled. There's um, subject matter jurisdiction, which basically says the court can hear this type of topic. Right. Okay. So to make sure that the court's even the right jurisdiction for it. Common example, federal court. Right. They're not going to hear state law claims. There's Family a caveat court. to that. But a federal court will hear issues on federal laws. Okay. okay? A state court won't do that necessarily. Okay. And by the way, broad strokes here, because there's lots of exceptions and caveats to this. Then there is the actual personal jurisdiction. Personal jurisdiction says, so now we have subject matter, meaning the court can make a decision. Personal says that decision can now be utilized against you. They can, they can put their hands on you. Or in the case of real property, they can retitle the property. Okay, so okay. that's a very important concept. This is your crash course, you know, one L year. I'm learning right now. Sort, so of, this, sort of concept. By the time we're done here, you can pass the uh, baby bar in California. Okay, great. <laughs> you and Kim Kardashian. <laughs> oh, did she pass? <laughs> I think she passed it. Oh, great. I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> I heard Ray J's getting his uh, law degree as well. Seriously? Well, no, I'm messing. <laughs> it's a cool thing another, to do. They're going to do another video. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's the first part of the case Correct. calendar. And then you would either have a default. Yeah. So now now I've served you. So now you have X amount of time to respond. It's typically 21 days in the state of Nevada. If you don't respond, I can default you, which basically says to the court, hey, this person received service. So there's due process. Right. They, for whatever reason, chose not to answer. We're going to enter a default that now says they can't answer. Right. And they've essentially ceded that our complaint against them is legitimate. Okay. Just by not answering, they've given away all their rights and whatever's entered at the at the judge is against them. Correct. And now hence the five point five million. That is that is that is exactly what happened in that case. Okay. And then a default judgment is the actual judgment where you've done the prove up hearing on these before. Yes. Where now you go into court. And you say, hey, judge, okay, they're defaulted. So the defendant has essentially ceded that, like, there is some liability here. But I still have to prove to you, judge, the legal mind, that there actually is a colorable claim over here. Damages. I mean, well, number one, that the lawsuit is legitimate still. Because okay. the court is not just going to check off on everything, right? Right, right. Court still needs to apply analysis. But then you also say, okay, here's the causation. We've, we've, we've met all these elements. Here are our damages. And now you prove up your damages. And right. you get whatever your damages are that you can show to the court. Right. So you go through the prove up hearing and the default judgment. You prove the damages. What happens after that with the default? Collection. Okay. So that's the end of that story. You either collect or you don't. Correct, yes. And there's lots of ways to try to collect. You know, you can do debtor examination. Or you appeal. Or, or the other party could eventually come in and say, hey, this default got entered and uh, entered against me. I want to try to throw it out and, and strike it and start over now. Judges may say yes or no to it, depending on how compelling of an argument they make. Right. So we got the default part. So they could say yes or no. We're going to go back on the path of 
Let's say they answer the complaint. So they answer. They can go in there and say, well, they can answer. They can respond to the complaint in a couple ways. Do One they have of, to hire an attorney? Please. Please hire an attorney. Please. I dealing. Do with, they have to? They don't have to. You Okay. I'm going in pro se next time. If you're an individual, you don't need an attorney. You can represent yourself. But if you're – it's a company – you need an attorney. You're not allowed to because that's practicing law without a license. If you represent, you so interesting. No, yeah, so, so you, you can't cannot pro go pro se with your LLC as the LLC. No, but if you're representing yourself for like a traffic ticket or whatever, you can go that's pro fine. se. You can be and, your own lawyer. And if you're, you know, on trial for murder, you can. Yeah, I mean, you know, more power to you, man. But Ted Bundy, don't represent yourself. <laughs> right? What they say, uh, a man with a fool for what is it? What's the old saying? A client. There's some saying where it says the client with no attorney is a fool, or the attorney. I don't know. Whatever the hell the saying is. I, I honestly don't know it. <laughs> but I can't remember it. There's a lot of fools in the courtroom. I can say that. That's for sure. That I can say. The answer or the first response of pleading is either a motion to dismiss. You can say, hey, there's no jurisdiction over me or whatever they're asserting is nonsense and so there shouldn't be a, cl uh, a claim against me. Or you answer the case. So here's my answer to the complaint and here are counterclaims. Now I'm also countersuing you. So you have two options. You either say, I want this thing dismissed or you're going to say it's not relevant and I'm going to counterclaim you. Correct. You only have two options. Correct. You have to answer it in some way. Your response has to be a motion to dismiss or an answer. And there's a couple more, but those are very Can we go through those and, real quick just because— and, and nuance. Well, I mean, you could do a special motion. So there's something called anti-slap in the state of Nevada. That's a strategic lawsuit against public participation. I should have studied before I came here. No. That is a strategic lawsuit against public participation is basically you're saying that someone is trying to— hinder or hurt my First Amendment right of speech. Okay. And so we have a special motion to strike or a special motion to dismiss. Sometimes I conflate California and Nevada. That's okay. Those You're concepts good. here. But um, you can also do that. Case calendar. Now you're at the point where you either answer it or you counterclaim. And where do you go from there? So then the parties now meet with each other or the attorneys more specifically. And they set up a discovery schedule. Okay. And discovery is that part of a case that is both extremely expensive and extremely annoying because that involves depositions like we talked about before, um, sending out subpoenas and basically sending out discovery requests. So I can say, hey, you know, to the other side, give me all of your tax records or give me all the communications that you had and blah, 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 blah. And Does anybody comply with that? Um, we're supposed to comply with it, and there's a lot of we have a lot of discovery disputes about that. The lawyers wind up fighting a lot about those sort of things. Like, I don't know any lawyer that likes doing discovery. I don't know any litigant who likes doing discovery. No one likes discovery, but it's very important because that's how you get build your case. So you get all the evidence you need for your case, whether you have to send out subpoenas or get the documents directly from the opposing party. And then, you know, you also have to do your depositions, which can take a lot of time and effort. Right. So, okay. So you do your discovery, you get all your documents, you get your interrogatories. What are interrogatories, by the way? Basically questions asked for the benefit of your case. So, so there's interrogatories, there's um, deposition, there's subpoenas. Correct. And then is there anything else during the discovery process? You can get experts. So you can get people who you pay a lot of money to. So now, let's talk about that because we just have yeah. one of those going on right now. Where yes. Do we pay our expert? Um, we've, we started with a $5,000 deposit and that's already gone. So <laughs> pretty they soon. They're just saying that we're right. Basically. No. So there's all types of different experts. We have a damages expert in a case got who's it. basically saying these are how you got your damages. An expert is basically somebody who is not a lay person who can tell you something very specific that will help the trier effect, so the jury or the judge, depending on what kind of case you have, it can aid in their knowledge or understanding of the case. So a damages expert will say, you know, X, Y, Z happened, this is how much it's worth. And then they're gonna, on the other side, get a damages guy who says, your guy is an idiot. 
Right. And your guy's going to say, no, he's an idiot. And yeah. now we have to depose the experts to say, yeah, you see, he's an idiot. So, <laughs> so, all right. so that's how it works. So we go into more deposition yeah. after we get our experts, but we're still in discovery. All in discovery. All in discovery. And, and in, with an expert, what is so expensive about it is, and this is me, an attorney, charging you $500 an hour saying experts are expensive. An expert is a five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars retainer. And when you're working with the expert, now you're basically getting double billed. My hour that I meet with the expert, you're gonna get a bill from me and the expert right. at our pretty high rates. Right. It gets very, very expensive. Right. That's why it's super important to work with an attorney who is gonna tell you what these expenses are beforehand. Okay, we got through the discovery process. After we're at the discovery process, we either settle Right? Yes. Because you've got so much against me, or I got so much against whatever the situation is. Correct. If we don't settle, where do we go next? So if we don't settle, right. we try our motions for summary judgment. This is like right before the judge is getting ready to set the date for trial. Right. And what's a motion to, for summary judgment? Basically says, hey, judge, here's everything we have or the, the, the specific or pertinent stuff we have. Right. There shouldn't be a reason this goes to trial on this issue or the whole issue. You can make a decision now because no finder of fact is going to find an opposite of our argument. So essentially, it's a summary of the case. Make a judgment on based on our summary and make a ruling today. A little bit. A okay. little bit. Um, I don't know where the word summary came from in all of this. It basically says if you take all the allegations alleged by the other side is true, I still win. So Got even it. if, and, and mind you, trial is really this. Trial, which we're gonna talk about right after this, trial is just the trier of fact or the finder of fact saying, this is the facts of the case. Right. Right? You say blue, I say green, judge or the jury says it is- Yellow. Yellow. <laughs> now, guess what? History has been altered. It's yellow. Right. And that's that's all a trial is, is saying these are the facts that are contested. Once you make a decision as to what the contested facts, what the outcome of those facts should be, now you apply that to the law. So assuming that we're going to a trial and we can't settle the summer. So it, well, let's say we got a summer judgment. J judge says... No dice, we're going to trial. And most of the time they say no dice. No, yeah, I, that's been my Very answer. hard. Yeah. yeah, very hard. That's because they don't want to make that kind of, a, and have it overturned later down the road, right? Correct. So they go down the court and they say, you know what? Uh, we're going to trial. How do you determine whether it's a bench trial or a jury trial? So you do that way in the beginning of the case. Okay. Way in the beginning of the case when you're doing that sort of, when I told you we were setting up the discovery schedule. Right. We actually make that decision around there. Okay. So you do a jury demand. In Nevada, you have to do a jury demand anytime before the judge sets the first dates for trial. Okay. And those dates are just kind of placeholders. Right. But um, so you determine if you want a jury trial from the, from the get-go. In some cases, you want a jury trial. Some cases, you want a judge. Who's in control of that? Each litigant has the ability to do it. Okay. So anyone can demand a jury. Uh-huh for any triable issue that a jury can hear. Right. So if you submit a jury demand, then it's a jury trial. So do insurance companies like jury trials or do they like bench trials? So that's funny and I'm not, I've never really figured this part out. Right. If I was the jury, if I was the insurance defense, I wouldn't want a jury trial, right? Because right. most of the time, if there's a plaintiff, and I'm just talking just from personal injury cases, right? they're gonna look and say, well, that's the defendant, there's an accident, there's most likely insurance back there, and you're gonna get at least, you know, you're gonna get all your jurors or enough jurors in there to say there's some issue. How many jurors do you need? Different cases, but there's eight jurors in Nevada for civil cases. Okay. Now, don't quote me on that because there's tons of different types of cases, but eight jurors. Okay, you need all of them. You, no. To win, yeah. you only need eight jurors as the actual jury pool. That's eight jurors there. Okay, out, then, of, out of 12. No, eight. There's total eight. Okay, there's total eight. Where am I getting the word 12 from? In my uh, criminal cases have 12. Criminal cases have 12. At least in my experience. And I don't do criminal law, so there's probably going to be someone in the comments that's going to say you're wrong. And trust me, I'm okay with being wrong. Yeah, that's fine. Um, me too. Yeah, it's... Comment below if we're wrong. Yes, comment <laughs> below if you're wrong. 
No one knows everything, I promise you. That's that. 100%. Seriously. Yes. Um, so you have eight jurors there, and you got to get five of those jurors to agree with you as the plaintiff. Okay, so just over 50%, basically. Correct. Yes. One over 50%. Preponderance of the evidence, we call it. Preponderance of the evidence. Okay, so once we get the jury trial done, and let's say the jury says, you know what, Troy, he's right. We're going to side with him. How do damages and stuff like that get awarded? So it depends on what type of damages you're seeking. We have special and we have general damages. Special damages are pretty simple for the most part. Those are quantifiable damages. I spent X amount to fix this. I spent X amount to do this. I have medical bills for this amount. Those are easy to quantify. Correct. And in fact, during the discovery process, I have to tell the other side, these are the exact damages we're seeking. Right. The issue is general damages. In certain cases, you can't get general damages like pain and suffering. Okay. But essentially pain and suffering, something like that, that's, you don't know what the number is, right? Because pain and suffering can be anything. Right. It can be $10 or it can be a million dollars. That's right. That's what pain and suffering is. And that's, as a professional, myself, um, I have issue with that because you don't know what the exact amount of general damages are being sought. So as you're trying to figure out how to settle a case, how am I supposed to know if you're not telling me you're seeking a million dollars in damages or 200,000 or 50,000 in damages? And you don't have to tell me that. Right. Because that's purely for the jury to decide. Right. So damages are broken up like that. All right. Is there anything else in the case? So let's say we get the damages. Now we have our piece of paper, right? Our worthless piece of paper. How do we collect on it? Well, you still got to remember for at least in Nevada, there's a 30 day period after your judgment is entered where you can't collect on it. It's stayed automatically. Okay. So the, the, the judgment goes down. There's a 30-day stay. Is that for someone to appeal? So, yes, and they changed it so it's 30 days now. It used to be a lot shorter, which kind of didn't make sense because your appellate period was 30 days. Right. So, I guess, you know, the legislature, they were like, yeah, let's, let's change some of this over here. It doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. If you do the appeal, you, you can still technically collect while a case is appealed. So if I have a judgment against somebody and they file an appeal, unless they post a bond or get yeah. something with the court that says it's stayed, I can collect during the appellate process Right. And, and keep on applying pressure. We've posted bonds before. Yes. And I'm not a huge fan of posting uh, supersidious uh, bonds. Those are called appellate bonds. Wow. Because... A supersidious bond, if you lose that appeal, guess what? If we're losing you now and you're in the weeds a little bit, understand that Brian does this for a living. And yeah. to be honest with you, he's explained this better than because I, I really am doing this for myself. Like when I'm asking you these questions, I'm trying to understand the whole process of the legal system. Because like I said, when I first asked you, the question was case calendar dictates everything. everything. And if you don't know where you're at on the case calendar, that's going to dictate how much money you're spending. That's going to dictate how far along you're in the process. And these trials can go on a long time. Correct. I mean, it might take, there's one case that I'm defending right now that's been going on since 2016. And we haven't even got to the appeal process yet. Yeah, there's there's so much. There is so, so much. And that's why, get an attorney. We have years of experience and education. We have a decent idea as to what we're doing here. All right, so, let me let me wrap up with a few questions that I have ri written down for you. Um, we talked about your childhood and becoming a lawyer was a dream. It was not a dream. It just was something that kind of happened from your immigrant parents telling you. to. Where, and where are your parents from? My mother is from Argentina, uh, okay. Italian Argentina. Like, so, Habla Espanol? Yes, Castellano. Yeah. See, si. so, ah. I grew up speaking Spanish, bilingual Spanish. And Does your dad English. speak Spanish too, right? He learned Spanish. My father is originally from Iran. So your father's from Iran, your mother's from Argentina. Correct, and her whole family is Italian. Do you speak so. uh, Farsi as well? No, no Farsi. Funny enough, when I moved to LA, went to school in LA, everyone was talking to me in Farsi. And you're like, um, the Daffy, and I look like this, so everyone's talking to me. In front. I'm like, guys, I'm sorry. You're like, no, habla. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can talk in Spanish, guys, but not, so, no, no Farsi. You know, one of the things I really admire about, like, when I look at Brian, I look at, like, what it is to be raised right, to be honest with you. I see you're surrounded by your parents. They speak, they taught you how to speak Spanish. I'm trying to teach my kids how to speak Spanish. Your dad speaks Spanish. And it's just like the, like you said, the ultimate 
American dream that you're their first glimpse at it. Your dad is a character. I, oh, yeah. I, I, I love your dad. I've got a, a few other questions. What do you think you wish everybody knew about your job? Like that they misunderstand? So the thing to know about our job is there's a lot more to my job than just interacting with what person. So a client will call you and say, hey, I have an emergency. And they fail to understand I'm also dealing with 20 other emergencies for other people. And I can't necessarily solve one thing immediately. And I try to, and I go out of my way to make sure every client knows them. They're for them and I'm paying attention to them. Right. And I'm really trying for them. But, and I, and I say this all the time when I meet people at my office, no one ever meets me when things are going well, <laughs> right? Like you're, you're, you're a special circumstance. I was going to say, I met you when things are going you, well. You met me with the, uh, with the eye for, hey, I got some business opportunities. I want to work I want, with someone. I was looking to find talented attorneys. Exactly. But most of the time people meet me because shit has gone bad. So that was going to be my next question is what's the biggest matter in real estate that you deal with or in business that you deal with on the daily that people could save themselves from having to spend money on an attorney for, with? So there's so many different, but I will say this. The most common. Like I, well, uh, let me just step back and say the best way to resolve any issue. And I said it earlier. The second you think there's an issue, speak with a professional. Call an attorney. That's the number one thing. Okay. Um, it's funny. There's kind of like waves of things I deal with. Right. All of a sudden, I have like a bunch of different quiet title actions or, or defamation cases. It's so weird how these cases come to me. Right. And, they, and I really feel like they're in waves. So I can't point to one thing that I see more often than not. But what I do see is common behavior or actions amongst these. Okay. The people that call me and say everything is messed up right now, they usually call me when they're at just the point where there's an answer due on a case or their last attorney screwed something up. Right. You gotta be on top of everything. Right. You just have to, and that's just life in general. You have to be proactive, stay in front of everything. And it might sound like hollow advice because, you know, stay ahead of everything. <laughs> but the second you think there, there's an issue, at least do yourself the favor and speak to somebody who may or may not know. But you won't know that until you pick up the phone and call. If there was a case that you could work on, where do you see yourself in the next five years, the end of your career, what cases do you want to work on and what do you enjoy working on the most? Honestly, yes. I like working the uh, real property cases with you. Those are the most fun because <laughs> there, I know enough about the law mm -hmm. that when I deal with cases like you, there's always a unique or different circumstance. So it's fun. So it's fun to know the law, right? but now applying different facts to the law. Right. Um, I do a lot of different types of litigation. I love those ones as well. So, yeah. and we're in the process of, uh, you know, transitioning from. If you're looking to uh, be a disposition specialist for my real estate portfolio, let me know. We are in the process of actually hiring a new person so we can start doing. I've actually got uh, three acquisitions in Nevada going right now. We're going for more and more and more. We've uh, are ranking number one on the SEO or number two or number three, depending on which site so there's a lot of people calling with leads and issues so there should be a, a bunch of more business picking up and as you know i just moved my family to kansas city and we did a bunch of other <laughs> stuff but i can tell you that you are I, I feel the same way like in terms of having fun and working on stuff and problem solving working with brian is one of the most enjoyable because i feel like he's on my team He's not just an attorney. And when what I mean by that is like sometimes you pay an attorney, you're like, he's like, ah, I'm giving you advice for this. Just stick to what I said to do. And, <laughs> and Brian's like, he's in there like, we could do this. We could do this. We could do this. We could do this. You could do this. It's all up to you. What do you want to do? And then he's constantly, he's kind of got that fatherly tone. He's like, Troy, remember what I told you? <laughs> Don't do this, you know? And and I respect the hell out of you for that. And I appreciate, and I, and I feel fortunate. I know that like with every negative there's a positive. And I know when we first met, that was a negative for you with your other client because he didn't like the fact that I poached, I guess would be the word, or I at least tried to, I was like, I found a great attorney, want to meet with the guy and use him. And he didn't like that because for whatever reason. People get very possessive when they find good professionals. <laughs> True. And I, I, I'm the opposite. I've referred 
um, a bunch of people to you. Absolutely. And that conflicts them out, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Can't have any issues with them that I can take care of. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a strategy there, too. Before we wrap it up, is there any piece of advice that you would give people who are trying to start investing in real estate? Do you think that having a, a good real estate attorney in your tool belt is something that you need as a real estate investor? 100% yes. And create that LLC. Create it. Don't delay on there. Meet with a professional. Create it immediately. That's going to save you a lot of headaches down the line. If you'd like to have Brian come back on the podcast, let us know with a five-star review. If you've got questions for Brian... Let us know in the comments below. If you got questions for me, let us know in the comments below. Please like, share, follow, and definitely get started investing in real estate. If they need to get a hold of you, Brian, how can they do so? My website is um, avalonlegalgroup.com. You can give my office a call at any time, 702-522-6450. And just feel free to give us a call. Um, consultation's free, and I always like meeting new people. Awesome. Brian's a great guy. Thanks for coming in, brother. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Peace. Peace.